Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, ideas, and in today's case, technologies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Janka Ertl and I'm the head of the ECFR Asia program. And for this episode, I'm taking over from your host, Mark Leonard, to talk about semiconductors and geopolitics, military power and technological supremacy, and what all this means for US-China relations, Europe, and the future of the global order. I am very happy to welcome Chris Miller, who is, among other positions, Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and author of a brand new book called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, which was published in early October. Chris has written a fantastic and highly political historical narrative about how integrated circuits became tinier and tinier so that they are now smaller than what he says the size of a single coronavirus, but at the same time more and more powerful and how they are now a source of political might that its inventors did not ever imagine they could become. While Chris is covering the technology and history angle of the conversation today, I'm delighted to also welcome Andrew Small, who's a senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and a former ECFR colleague. Andrew is the author of a book that is so hot off the press that while we speak, he himself has not even gotten his hands on a physical copy. It was released on the US market on 15th of November and is entitled The Rupture, China and the Global Race for the Future. It also touches quite substantially on the technological dimension of this race from 5G to the third offset strategy of the US Department of Defense and the political dynamics that have led to the reassessment of China in Washington, as well as across Europe and beyond. Welcome, Chris and Andrew. Thank you both very much for taking the time and for joining us here on the podcast. Let's start with you, Chris, maybe. In your new book, you argue that the chip industry now determines both the structure of the global economy and the balance of geopolitical power. For all of those listening and us not following the dynamics quite as closely, um, could you maybe unpack that statement just a little bit for us? Well, if you start with uh, global trade, many of us think of uh, trade being about uh, electronic devices or about textiles or about petroleum products. But if you look at what many of the uh, biggest trading nations import and export, it's semiconductors. China spends as much money importing chips each year as it spends importing oil. And if you look across the rest of East Asia, you'll find that semiconductors are the most widely traded good. Taiwan, over 40% of exports are chips. Uh, Philippines and Malaysia, over 25%. Korea, 15%. So there's no good that's more important to the structure of contemporary globalization than semiconductors. And I think that's uh, that's an interesting and complicated uh, dynamic because semiconductors are also at the center of military competition uh, between the U.S. and China. Even as they knit together the global economy, they're also driving the primary force that is uh, pushing both uh, superpowers towards decoupling. And if you look at how uh, both defense planners in Beijing and in Washington are conceptualizing the future of their military forces, they're placing computing power on the semiconductors that enable computing at the center. And so right now there's a race underway, not only uh, to build the most powerful militaries in East Asia, which there certainly is an arms race underway, but there's also a, a computing race underneath it because whoever controls the most advanced semiconductors will have access to the most advanced computing power and will be more likely to be able to apply that to military systems. Chris, in October, the U.S. introduced pretty far-reaching controls on the export of, of high-end chip technology and high-end chips. What do you think will be the impact on, on China with regard to their own technological advance? Was that 
pretty good timing for the United States to do this um, at the scale at this time. What do you make of these export controls? Well, right now, China is still very reliant on foreign chips and foreign chip making technology for its entire tech industry. If you want to make an advanced chip in China, you've got to import machine tools from the US, Japan, and the Netherlands, use software largely from the United States. And if you want to import advanced chips uh, in China, you largely turn to Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, or the United States. Uh, and so China's got a lot of chip making capacity, but it's almost all at low tech nodes. And the U.S. has decided over the past couple of years, precisely because of this uh, military aspect of the semiconductor industry, to try to restrain China's ability to buy advanced ships and to build advanced ships at home. And because of China's dependence, the U.S. has a lot of leeway to cut China off from chip making technology. So maybe in a decade's time, China will be able to domesticate some of the technologies that it needs. But right now, it's hugely dependent. And Chinese firms near the cutting edge simply can't operate without U.S., Japanese uh, and European uh, tools and software. So this was a good idea by Washington to do this right now, a real strike, a real blow to the Chinese economy, a real blow to China's military capabilities? Yes. And I think from the U.S. perspective, the question is how to uh, slow or reverse the deterioration of the military balance. If you compare to 20 years ago, China is vastly more powerful in military terms uh, relative to the U.S. I, I like thinking back to the 1995-1996 Taiwan Straits crisis, when in the middle of the crisis, the U.S. president at the time, Bill Clinton, ordered an aircraft carrier battle group to sail through the Taiwan Straits. Um, and that was enough to force the Chinese to back down, whereas today that would be a dangerous thing to do, uh, given all of the Chinese anti-ship missiles arrayed along uh, the Chinese side of the Straits. And because the military balance has shifted so much, uh, the U.S. has to rely even more than before on whatever qualitative advantages it still has. And it does have some qualitative advantages in, in certain spheres of, uh, of, of warfare, anti-submarine uh, and underwater uh, capabilities, for example, are far better in the U.S. than in China. But if you look across the, um, the range of military capabilities, the key advantage the U.S. has is computing power. It can produce uh, better semiconductors and it can more effectively apply them to military systems uh, than China. And so preserving this edge is crucial, not primarily for economic reasons, uh, but for military reasons. We will talk about Taiwan a little bit later, but I would like to bring in Andrew in the conversation. Andrew, in your book, it becomes very clear that you have sort of looked at the US-China relationship from Beijing, from Brussels, from Washington, now from Berlin for almost like a decade and a half. What do you make of this latest round of export controls from the US side? What do they signal to Beijing? Is this really something new, an apocal change in the way that the U.S. is approaching China? And maybe we can also touch on what is the message that it not only sends to Beijing, but also to Europe and, and the allies? Um, I think the interesting thing about this is I'm, I'm sitting in Brussels at a, at a NATO event at the moment. It's really quite good to go back and read Bob Work's speech on the third offset that he delivered at NATO back in 2016 as a sort of reference point for the argument that has been made and that, that in some respects kind of prefigures the export controls that, that we see today. Um, Chris was talking through, I mean, essentially, uh, the, the argument about the importance of maintaining military edge. And this, this, this was the argument that he, he laid out here, that there was this massive erosion in technological superiority, um, on the part of the US vis-a-vis -vis not just China, but, but Russia. Um, and that, that this was undermining deterrence. 
and and that this needed to be restored um, if you were going to achieve successful deterrence. And we will come on to that with with reference to to Taiwan as as a particular case and kind of justification um, for how that's being applied in this case. But the the argument was also that unlike the kind of previous, the comparable periods in in the Cold War, that most of the most important technological advances were taking place in the commercial sector. And the calculation back in in 2016, he talked about that essentially the US would have to live with fast followers and that you would be operating, the US would have to operate in a context in which because these technologies were commercially available, US competitors and rivals were going to have access to these technological developments and be able to catch up. Um, and that this was in some ways something that the US was just going to have to deal with. And that calculation and the assessment of can you actually take actions that preclude this? Do you have to be comfortable with fast followers? Do you have to treat it as just a fact of life that a global technology base is something that, that China is going to have access to, that Russia is going to have access to? Or can you really quite fundamentally, through the use of some tools that either were not used for these purposes before or that had to be kind of crafted in, in slightly different ways, uh, apply them to uh, slow down or erode um, the technological catch-up that we were, were seeing on, on, on the Chinese and Russian side, and, and particularly and obviously most importantly on, on, on the Chinese side. And so you can kind of go through and read that speech from, from 2016 and the argument that was made there and see the logic of where you were going to ultimately get to today when it came to some of the controls and measures that were going to have to be uh, imposed. But the point was the technology base is global. Um, it's not a, there are things that the US can do unilaterally um, in this regard. Um, but the, as we've seen in, in, in the last year in the negotiations that have taken place, um, uh, on, on, on the fir- this first round of, of, of export controls on, um, advanced node semiconductors, there are a number of other international partners who in some respects or other have to be on board. You can coerce them in principle, um, but it's obviously uh, much more effective if you have an alliance that includes um, Japan, uh, the Netherlands, Taiwan and Korea and and various others um, if you're going to make this, uh, if you can make some of these controls effective. So your point is, I think, then uh, maybe to say, um, you know, getting U.S. allies in line is key to what is going on. You argue that in the book, um, that that is something that is kind of difficult because this has to take place against domestic economic pressure in all of those countries to do precisely the opposite. That you say, you know, China is a market really worth fighting for and that some of the world's most powerful lobbyists would do exactly that, that it is in the countries themselves that it is actually hard to do this. So what are you seeing with regard to the export controls? How would you assess that and kind of put that into perspective? Is this just the U.S. with brute force acting or is this still part of an overall getting the allies into the game, working together in kind of doing something that slows down the progress on the Chinese side? I mean, this was in theory a kind of highly consultative approach that was taken. And I mean, the interesting thing about this, even talking to people on the Chinese side, uh, reacting to to these controls, they were somewhat used to um, a whole series of exemptions and limits and working out the second and third order consequences. And can you stockpile here, if not here? And there were all sorts of ways of maneuvering in the past. Um, th- this is this is more sweeping, um, and it's also, I think, understood to be only the first round on on, on this. So it, it is a very interesting test case in, in in that regard. And and there was this kind of extended process, obviously with with U.S. companies, but then with with some of the key 
uh, European and Asian companies and, and countries in, in trying to come up with a relatively joined up approach on, on this. And there are quite different views on kind of what these consultations amounted to. And there are clearly, there's clearly some level of resentment in some places being having to do some of these things by US diktat. There are some who are quite happy to have the US be the bad guy on this and, and avoid blame themselves. Um, and then there are other arguments that were kind of genuinely in terms of where the line was drawn that um, they disagreed with where this came out in terms of, um, you know, the, some of the specifics of, of, of what was proposed. So, so they, in practice, were not able to reach an agreement. There are still efforts to, to, to do this. But um, as you kind of note in, in the question, this is not Iran. This is not North Korea. This is not even Russia. The scale of the market is, is huge. And there's a different set of calculations when it comes to the question of, in the end on, on this, could you have companies in some of these countries that, that may still see an incentive for saying, well, we will um, uh, and, and I mean, I, I don't, there, there are some specifics when it comes to semiconductors that, 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 that make some of this, um, harder in some of these instances, but in some of the other areas that we're going to be looking at, which market is more valuable? And it's not necessarily going to be the United States. And so I think it's still quite critical to be able to build a framework where you do genuinely have a common view and you have governments in these countries that are willing to apply um, this legislation directly rather than it being um, something where a, a number of other European firms can you know, design out US content without uh, facing any penalties. Chris, one, one point that struck me really in your historic review was kind of just reflecting on the fact that the developments in the semiconductor industry were mainly driven initially by military concerns. It was kind of the logic of the late 1950s. It was the height of the Cold War. And it was like about making better weapons, making them more precise, making them hit more targets. You know, it was really at the core of this. And I think you lay that out incredibly nicely, how that was driving this. But then also at the same time that it was sort of too expensive to do this just for military use. The numbers you cite um, on a cost of a single chip design, et cetera, um, are just, you know, it's just fantastic how you lay that out. Um, I think I would like you to go into detail a little bit more on, you know, it's too costly for the mighty US military even to do this. But at the same time, we're in this zone now where the kind of measures that are taken to slow China down have an effect on the commercial base that is also underpinning this. So, My question basically being, is the U.S. shooting itself in the foot in the long run? Is it kind of winning the battle, losing the war with the measures that it's taking right now because of the damage that this is doing to the commercial interest in the semiconductor space? Well, I think that is a risk. And one of the lessons that the history of the industry shows is that you've got to have access to a global market to sell to in order to scale in the ways that make production economically efficient. Um, but I think what's also the case is that Right now, China is a small share of the market for advanced chip-making tools. It's a larger share of the market for less advanced chip-making tools, and it's a big share of the world market for chips. But if you look at what the U.S. has actually cut off, it's cut off a very small sliver of chip sales to China, a couple percentage points of overall sales. And it's cut off a slightly larger share of advanced tool sales to China. But almost all chips and many tools will still be legal to ship to China. So the chip in your iPhone or the chip in your computer, all that is totally unaffected. And so I, I think if you look at the way the Commerce Department laid out the regulations, they were uh, taking into account exactly the dilemma that you brought up, which is that they still want U.S. firms and firms from allied countries to have access to as much of the Chinese market as possible precisely to get these scale effects. Um, but because China is a big economy, um, there will be some costs associated with 
uh, trying to, to limit his access. I think the, the other question to ask is, well, who other than firms that are directly affected by these regulations will be able to compete uh, to take market share that they've lost? And the answer in a lot of cases is there aren't that many real competitors. In most cases, there aren't Chinese competitors that are anywhere close to the technological cutting edge. So we're actually talking about Japanese and European firms um, potentially benefiting from U.S. firms being cut off. And that's why I think we should expect to see the U.S. government putting a lot of pressure on um, both companies and countries to say, we're doing this in no small part to secure you, uh, to provide the military power that you depend on. Uh, please don't let your firms undercut our firms in the process. You better not kind of sneakily go around these controls and trying to um, undermine your security with doing this for military purposes. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that brings us nicely to kind of the question of Taiwan, the kind of one key hotspot where all of this is playing out, where this is a lot about you know U.S. military power and the capabilities and the capacity to defend allies and partners in the region. Andrew, it is also the area in which it's much about kind of the semiconductor context. So in a way, I think one can argue that um, the fact that such a vast amount of um, high-grade advanced semiconductors are being produced in Taiwan has sort of put the conflict um, on the agenda in Europe. This is somehow something that brought us there into the conversation in a different fashion than the regional security context would have What do you make of the latest round of speculations about Beijing's intentions and timelines of what we're seeing in the in the Taiwan context here? Um, What do you think is uh, something that we're likely going to see? And after that, Chris, I would like to kind of go through the kind of semiconductor impacts in the scenarios a little more in detail. So the U.S. government has been sharing quite recently this report uh, conducted by Rhodium Group, um, where uh, of the economic impact of some of the scenarios in in Taiwan, by far the biggest, by far the biggest shock for the global economy um, and certainly for Europe um, is the impact on uh, semiconductors. So um, this 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 has obviously kind of uh, not not just in this specific scenario instance, which 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 was looking at kind of blockade uh, cases rather than than full invasion, but but this this has obviously been something that has been part of a focusing minds in, in, in Europe in, in the last period of time and, and with some additional precision with, with some of this modeling that's, that's, that's been done. Um, but obviously there's been a lot of relatively loose talk on, um, timetables on Taiwan. We've had a 2027 date, um, which I think is really understood to be a capabilities deadline date for PLA, but that's sometimes been treated as a deadline of intention on on the Chinese side. Um, We have all of the risk scenarios around 2024 and the Taiwanese elections, and to a certain extent, how the Taiwanese elections intersect with the US elections. And then we have these slightly longer timeframes, which are whether there is a window for Beijing um, when it comes to some of the US military capabilities and its ability to kind of counteract some of China's anti-access area denial capabilities by 2030. And there are some kind of dates around that as well. Um, but we then almost had this competitive period of how soon is China going to conduct an invasion uh, of Taiwan that was taking place um, in, in from, from a whole series of bits of, of US government, um, which, which I think has actually kind of Fed in, um, we just had obviously the Xi Biden, um, uh, meeting this week to, to, to some concern about where some of these dynamics were, what were going on, on the Sino-US side, um, for other partners, 
um, on the Chinese side in terms of how to interpret what the US was doing. But but these also did reflect genuine concerns and analytical concerns on the US side about whether these timetables uh, were being shortened. Chris, in, in your book, you run through these scenarios quite impressively and in a, in a short version of what that Taiwan contingency would mean concretely for the semiconductor industry. You also go through those arguments of saying China's going to just take over TSMC, uh, the most important producer um, of advanced semiconductors, and is just going to just kind of um, grab that technology and run with it. Basically, um, you debunk a lot of those myths. Give, you, give us a short version um, of that to get a bit of a feel for what is at stake. So today, almost all smartphone processors are produced in Taiwan, a third of PC processors, critical chips for data centers and telecoms infrastructure. In aggregate, one third of the computing power the world adds each year comes from semiconductors made in Taiwan. So the cost would be measured in the trillions of dollars in year one, and it would actually take at least half a decade, if not longer, to fully replace all the capacity that would be lost in Taiwan. So it would be an enormous shock. And some people think that's a positive because It would be a shock that would be felt not only by uh, by uh, Taiwan's friends, but also by China. Um, but I think that might be overly optimistic because in in the sort of D-Day style amphibious landing scenario, um, yes, that shock might induce other countries like the U.S. to come to Taiwan's aid. But I think if you think instead about what might be more plausible scenarios of uh, smaller Chinese actions designed to test U.S. willingness to support Taiwan, say seizing one uh, small island in the Taiwan Straits and looking to see how the U.S. and other countries respond. In that case, Taiwan's economic importance and technological importance could actually deter the U.S. from getting involved. If, in fact, the president gets a briefing that says, you know, dear Mr. President, in addition to a major military risk, any sort of action to support Taiwan would also involve a massive disruption of trade flows and a huge cost to the U.S. economy. Would you like to come to Taiwan's defense or not? I think the answer might well be no, which is why I think actually Taiwan would be more secure if there was more diversification of chip production away from Taiwan. I think that's that may be a controversial position to take in, in some um, parts of Washington. I think I would agree with you that I think it's particularly difficult um, to to kind of take that risk um, of, of hitting Uh, that economy. Um, we're, we've now spoken about kind of the hot war dimension of this, but both of you in both of those books, and I think that's what makes it very interesting to compare the two as well. You're kind of speaking about, you're describing the reality that we're seeing right now, and you're describing it as sort of emerging new cold war. This is something that kind of is a vibe of the of the tonality of what you're describing between China and the United States. How does that fit into what we're seeing um, this week at the G20 meetings? Um, are the optics getting a little better? Are we witnessing a light thawing um, towards the as we're coming into the winter of this emerging Cold War? Or do you think these are just kind of tactical shifts, optical shifts, nothing strategic has changed? Maybe Chris first and then Andrew. Well, I'm not sure that anything strategic has changed. And I think if you look at the key question, which is, China wants to be the regional hegemon and the U.S. doesn't want to give it that position. Uh, there's no resolution on that issue. Uh, and it's still unclear which side in 10 years time will have the power to get what it wants. And so, so long as that fundamental issue is unresolved, I, I think summits between leaders can impact the optics day to day, but they can't resolve the, the core tension in the relationship. Andrew, do you see any positive signs from the G20? Well, I mean, this is quite unusual for how U.S.-China summits um, are conducted. I mean, obviously, there has been this long hiatus with with Xi Jinping kind of buried away. But 
I think you would normally have these summits. If you, if you go back to think of what's played out during any previous administration, there's normally some kind of big intended deals, deliverables. There's absolutely none of that in this case. Um, what you essentially had was a meeting where both sides went into it with the very specific intention of putting a flaw under the relationship without there being, I mean, not even that you would then have new mechanisms or, or anything like that. It was just a kind of signaling exercise to say, there are a few things that have run uncomfortably outside our control, uh, which which I think was going on in some of the political dynamics on, on Taiwan. China was not comfortable with where this was going. The US was not comfortable with kind of how both sides were mutually interpreting what was happening. Um, and so I think there was a genuine incentive for, for both sides to say, let us put a lid on this. Let us stabilize uh, the situation um, and simply the act of kind of collective intent on that will, will make something of a, of a difference. Um, so there was some utility in that. I think it was some utility, particularly at a G20, of essentially demonstrating to the rest of the world that this can be a responsibly managed relationship, um, assuaging concerns among partners and allies. But I think what this represented as a summit, moving to a zone in which you're basically saying, you accept that you're heading into a period of competition, rivalry, struggle. And do you now have to conduct these meetings around dealing with the worst possible fallout from that, preventing conflict, managing the kind of, you know, potential destabilizing dynamics in these things? That's very different from, from what used to be done in a bilateral US China meeting. And it's a completely transformed bilateral relationship and, and goals for for a meeting like this. So you know, there were, there were limited objectives, but even what those objectives represent shows what a radical change there's been just in the last couple of years. And I think it's, that's what we can expect in future. So now we've talked a lot about US-China relations, but we are the European Council on Foreign Relations. So for us, it's obviously also very important. What does all of this mean for Europe in the end? Chris, you are following this very particular side of things on the US-China dimension, on the CHIPS dimension. But sitting here in Europe, what should Europe do to prevail in the chip war? If you had a meeting with Ursula von der Leyen tomorrow, what would you suggest she should do to actually improve Europe's position as much as possible? Well, my sense is that in, in Europe, the chips debate has focused too much on can Europe fabricate more chips at the cutting edge and not enough on capitalizing on Europe's existing strengths. So in the machine tools that are used to make chips, Europe has a number of key companies, chip design, there are a number of important companies in Europe. And so I, I do worry that the European debate has focused on the wrong metrics rather than taking advantage of Europe's strengths. I think next to that, European leaders and European uh, business leaders have struggled to understand US-China dynamics because they've seen them through the lens of trade, which is the wrong lens to understand what's going on. This is a security question rather than a trade question. And I think as European leaders come to account more for the importance of security and military concerns and the US approach to semiconductors, they'll understand more what the US is doing uh, and and hopefully uh, we'll be able to reach some sort of transatlantic agreement about what policy towards semiconductors should be. Thank you, Chris. I think that's a very good point to say Europe is sort of still using the wrong lens through which to look at the problem. Andrew, do you think Europe is ready for what is to come? Will it be able to actually chart some sort of course um, as an individual one? Or has uh, systemic rivalry killed strategic autonomy, to kind of put it bluntly? I mean, the semiconductors piece of this, I mean, the new export control legislation was interesting joining sort of intra-European discussions on, on this in the immediate aftermath. Because one of the points was being, that was being made 
by uh, some of the experts, I, I, I am not one, was that the capabilities on the European side, even to come back with a kind of countervailing assessment or alternative framework of thinking about this, are, are, are still quite limited. I mean, this this is an area in which, um, although this has been coming for a number of years, I don't think you've really got yet on the European side something that looks like a comprehensive assessment of the trade-offs, what the overall balance of this framework is going to look like. One of the notable things in the early stages of the Biden administration was this point in which the US government came along and said to their European interlocutors, essentially, let's design a policy framework for the system. Let's think this through. What does a kind of system-wide approach to China need to look like? Here's our initial thinking, but what is your thinking? We've gone through on the US side um, a process of, of understanding that says, we cannot do this alone. We need to work with allies across the board on all of these different dimensions. We went through the largest exercise in kind of unilateral measures under the Trump administration, and we saw its limitations. So we need to do this as a collective. What does the collective do in in this regard? And there were no serious answers that came back from, from the European side. There's still been an effort to define this for Europe as Europe, while then in some of these critical areas, as we're seeing with export controls, essentially still having to defer to analysis on the system from the US side, somewhat resentfully, I, I, I still think in, in, in some, I mean, I, I think in, in the specifics, there was a fair degree of, of agreement. And as Chris pointed out, because it was narrowly defined, the costs were contained in scale. But I think there's still a discomfort with the overall sense that the US is trying to design a framework that is a system framework for Europeans, for Asian partners, and you're not yet having, I think, on the European side, a view that says, okay, well, if we have an alternative vision for the, what the systemic response is going to be, whether that plays out at the Tra- uh, Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council or in any of the other uh, frameworks that are there, this is something that needs to be laid out and argued for. And I, I think at, at the moment, we're in this kind of slightly uncomfortable space um, where there isn't the willingness to do this sort of deep integration in a whole series of different ways. I think we'll see that again with the next TTC in, in December. There's still these big gaps and continued fights and disputes over transatlantic subsidies, all of these sorts of questions. And yet there isn't the capacity on Europe, even in the absolutely maximalist scenario, to be able to operate with, uh, to be able to get what it wants through um, a, a kind of level of strategic autonomy that would be comparable to that of the United States. So I think that there's still ultimately, I think, going to be a point for, for the European side where there has to be a kind of system level thinking about what, what what model they want for the relationship, not just between Europe and China, but to a certain extent between the West between the advanced industrial democracies and, and China, because that's where a lot of these critical issues are now being decided. That's the level um, at which these issues are being decided. Chris, do you think that um, the kind of the system level question, um, I think that's something that's really important to kind of describe the thinking that is going on on the US side. Um, do you think that that has been conveyed well enough by by the United States? Is there a degree of, um, in Washington, like, being fed up with having to explain this over and over again, what is at stake and how much the security dimension actually matters in this? There's there's some realization that Europe is far away from China. And so there's a, a different sense of the both the magnitude and the, the level which the threat is pressing. If you look at this question from, from Europe versus from Washington or or from other Asian capitals, but but I do think there is some amount of frustration that's grown. I think especially the the Biden team came into office as 
as Andrew alluded to, saying we're going to do this differently from the Trump administration by taking very seriously our collaboration with allies and on, on this key issue, which was highlighted as an important issue from day one, uh, tech export controls. Uh, the fact that there hasn't been um, a multilateral framework that's emerged, I think, is a sign of the limitations of multilateral collaboration on issues where there are some diverging interests and where the U.S. is still such a big player that it can operate unilaterally without much degradation and effectiveness, a bit, but not too much. And that's why two years in, the, the uh, Biden administration decided to act alone, even though it would much preferred to act in coordination with allies. Would you say, coming back to the G20 conversation just briefly, um, that because the Biden administration has sort of used this nuclear option of the export controls um, that has not generated a Chinese response so far, um, that this is actually creating a better framework for everyone to interact with China? And is it again the case where kind of the US is taking the hit and the cost for this and allies are just benefiting and sort of free riding on US measures and US courage to just go it alone? Or would you say that's a bit much in putting it that way? I think that's a bit of an overstatement. Uh, if you look at the cost of this measure, there's a bunch of U.S. firms that have been hit. There's also been some uh, firms in, in Europe and elsewhere that have been hit. Um, but I, I do think the free riding question will come to the fore if, in fact, we see companies from allied countries actively trying to subvert the controls. Um, and we're going to have to wait and see whether that actually emerges. Andrew, do you think that um, with the statements that we've seen coming out from Macron, from Schultz, that are also trying to put a floor under the relationship in the Europe-China relationship at the moment, um, that what we are seeing is conducive uh, to this um, broader kind of transatlantic unity on this? Um, or do you think that we're actually seeing precisely that, slightly sneakily trying to get around a ever so like, worsening US-China relationship And trying to portray also with the Schultz visit to China, with the business delegation that's coming there, coming with along with him, um, to portray a bit of a business as usual dynamic there. Well, I mean, I think you can also say that uh, the, the G20, you had a fairly consistent level of messaging discipline on a few key points. If you go through and you say, what were the issues raised in the Schultz visit and by virtually every European leader who got to meet with, with Xi Jinping in the last couple of days, the, the reason that you kept getting these endless statements on um, uh, the Russian uh, on, on nuclear weapons use was because this was repeatedly raised. They were all raising Taiwan. I mean, there, were, there was an effort collectively to try to coordinate and say, also, look, we are coordinated on these questions. Yes, there are going to be areas of differentiation. Um, and there were some particularly obvious areas of differentiation with the Schultz visit. I think there was obviously a lot of disquiet around that um, in the rest of Europe uh, with the US and, and various other allies, but but obviously in, in, in Germany uh, itself and across the coalition. So, I mean, yes, there were, there were serious issues with, with, with the messaging of what it represented to be going uh, to, to China in these circumstances with a group that looked like what it looked like on the business side at a juncture in which it seemed so important to be sending these messages in a much uh, clearer way. So there were concerns about that, but I think on a number of these areas, there has been a fair degree of alignment um, on some fundamental um, questions. And there is a level of coordination, which, I mean, if you go back to a few years ago, I mean, you go back to the Obama administration, you look at the, during the Trump administration, this was not happening. You were not getting G7s that looked like what they looked like. You did not have the quality of exchanges taking place transatlantically on China uh, that you had before. You, you, you didn't have this level of convergence, either of analysis or messaging. Um, and so I think there, there are still gaps in certain obvious ways. Um, 
camp, there are still kind of wobbles and moments of sort of seemingly rogue behavior from particular leaders jumping out of line on on this or that and not being very disciplined. But I think for the most part, there's a relatively high degree of alignment in views and approaches on, on these questions. Um, I think going back to this question of whether the system is really able to pull together, there is still this kind of haunted by the next US elections question that you you still get from European leaders on how closely to integrate if if the rug will be pulled out from under you in a couple of years time i mean there's whatever one makes of of, of that argument i i think you do still it's still commonly cited as as a concern when people are trying to figure out how deep to go on transatlantic for instance economic integration but i i wouldn't exaggerate the degree to which um there are, there have been real rifts on this for instance at the g20 we're running, unfortunately, out of time, which is always the case with super interesting topics. But I think there's one thing left to do on this podcast that we always do towards the end, which is our bookshelf section, which uh, at the end of a two books presented podcast is obviously particularly fun to do. So what's on your bookshelf, Chris, now that you've finished your own book and can start reading other people's books again with great delight? Well, I've just finished an excellent book by a professor named Joseph Turgian called Prestige, Manipulation and Coercion on Elite uh, Politics in the Soviet Union and China, which I think is an insightful historical study that has a lot to say about how elite politics inside of Beijing and Moscow are working today. So I recommend that strongly. I think that's particularly interesting with regard to China-Russia relations as well and some parallels that one can draw. Andrew, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, so on the sort of virtual bookshelf, I had literally started reading um, Chris's book the other day and had bought it before this podcast. Um, so so it is certainly one of them. The one I will flag is The Cashless Revolution, China's Reinvention of Money and the End of American Domination of Finance and Technology by Martin Chodzemper. His book basically on, on the digital currency um, question. And he's actually rather less, I would say, pessimistic than the title would imply in terms of what this, where, where this will ultimately go for, for, for US financial power and things. But I think that's, that's one of the other, the two main areas of vulnerability that China understands it has the technology side, um, semiconductors in particular and global finance and exposure to the dollar system. That is the other big piece of, of the equation to, to, to Chris's book. The two Achilles heels, basically. I have a relatively easy job because uh, I, of course, recommend two books today. Chris's book, Chip War, Andrew's new book, The Rupture. Both of them are a highly recommended read. To make sure that you are not missing out on uh, anything at home, we will make sure to put all the links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours but above all, hopefully, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. For now, from Chris Miller, Andrew Small, and myself, Janka Otto, it is goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Hauptenthal, and the editor of this week's episode is Marlene Riedel.